As always, folks, we try to bring you independent voices and civil dialogue across that gaping political divide. I'm Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa, also known as the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. If you like what we do, we could sure use your help, folks. Uh, you, you can visit the uh, Fallon Forum website. There's one of those little magic donations buttons there. Use that. And if you run a small business or a nonprofit doing good work, you can consider becoming a sponsor. And uh, speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Des Moines' locally owned and specialty grocery store. Uh, Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Gateway also has an excellent produce section, local produce, and you can check out their catering and floral services as well. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Uh, thanks also to Vibes Kitchen and Bar, serving creative interpretations of American classic food and drink. Uh, Vibes has a relaxing and welcoming atmosphere and an awesome outdoor patio. It's the perfect place for parties or for watching your favorite sports team. Learn more at Vibes Kitchen and Bar's Facebook page. All right, Charles Goldman is with me again two weeks in a row. Wow. Uh, welcome, Charles. Good to see you, Ed. Yeah, well, you know, we're going to be discussing the pros and cons of canceling student loan debt, and we're also going to discuss crime. In fact, we're going to boldly go where the right-wing talk show hosts are afraid to go, and we're going to discuss the most damaging and costly crime wave sweeping across the U.S., and that would be white-collar crime. We'll examine several examples of that and with a polite nod to the 21st century's Al Capone of white-collar crime, Donaldo Giuseppe Trumpino. Anyway, uh, after Charles and I get tired of speaking truth to power, Kathy Burns is going to join me, and we're going to be talking about uh, our trip to France, our honeymoon in France, and comparing U.S. and French farming practices. But first, I am delighted to tell you about the golden rule. If you live along the Mississippi River and you happen to see this large sailboat heading south with a big, huge red sail uh, emblazoned with the words, Veterans for Peace, uh, you will no doubt be curious. Well, uh, we're here today to satisfy your curiosity. Uh, that ship is called the Golden Rule, and with us to learn more about it is Helen Jacquard with Veterans for Peace. Uh, Helen is also a member of Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. She's a public speaker and a writer. Uh, Helen, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you. I'm really excited to be on the air today with you. Great. Well, hey, so the Golden Rule, it's not only sailing down the Mississippi River. This ship is sailing up the Atlantic coast hopefully avoiding hurricanes, uh, and then over what? Over through the, uh, the Erie Canal, the Great Lakes, back down to the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, this is a lot of sailing. What is going on here, Helen? Tell us about the Golden Rule. Well, just a, a couple minutes introduction to the boat and why we're doing what we're doing. Um, in 1958, by 1958, the United States had tested 67 nuclear weapons in the Marshall Islands setting off a wave of radiation around the planet that people were concerned about. People were trying to get the radiation, the, the nuclear testing stopped, and they were protesting in the streets, writing to Congress and the president, letters to the editor doing self-education, and what they were doing wasn't successful. So a group of Quaker peace activists bought the Golden Rule new and sailed her towards the Marshall Islands. They were going to just put themselves in the way of the nuclear testing. That's brave. Yes, Very it was. Brave. Right. They made it to Honolulu, resupplied, and headed out. And pretty soon, the Coast Guard cutter brought them back. 
They arrested the crew um, who spent two months in jail. And the there was just a, a tidal wave of support for free the crew of the golden rule and stop the nuclear testing, which led to enough political cover for President Kennedy to sign the Limited Test Ban Treaty of 1963 mm. and also spawned the founding of Greenpeace, whose first mission was to go to Alaska to try to stop some underground testing up also, there. Also by ship, if I remember correctly. That's the whole thing. Yeah. That's right. They, yeah. Two Quaker couples were sitting around a table up in Vancouver, B.C., and they said, what should we do about this nuclear testing? And they said, why don't we do what the crew of the Golden Rule did and get a boat and go up there? So, the so go- it was the same thing. So the, the Golden Rule, the ship, uh, made its first, its, its, ma- its maiden voyage back in 1958, the year I was born, by the way. And it's still around. The ship is, still exists, and it is still pushing for uh, a, an end to nuclear proliferation, correct? Right. We're, okay. we're looking for not just an end to proliferation. We're looking for nuclear abolition. We want to, you know, end the nuclear era. And what we want to do is educate people enough that the entire country will support signing the UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which internationally now, nuclear weapons are also illegal, just as are chemical weapons and biological weapons and cluster bombs and landmines. So um, with the ratification of it by 50 different countries, now internationally it's illegal. We're trying now to pressure the nine nuclear armed countries to sign the treaty and that will set off a a series of events for negotiations to reduce verifiably, irreversibly, not unilaterally, to reduce and ultimately eliminate nuclear weapons. It's a noble goal. And uh, again, it reminds me of what President Obama uh, said back in what, what uh, the, it was his first month or two of his um, time in, in, in office. He was in Prague in Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic. And he, see, he basically made a commitment to uh, his, his own personal feeling about the need to abolish nuclear weapons. And yet we still haven't come uh, that far. It's, it's, it's disturbing given, given how serious the problem this is and how little progress we've made on it. So um, the goal of the golden rule uh, ship. The, the goal of sailing the ship down the Mississippi River is to continue to wake people up to the importance of moving forward with toward abolition, correct? Yes, and this is a very important time because people's minds are more open to it right now with the conflict in Ukraine, where both sides are at least hinting that they could use a tactical nuclear weapon. Tactical meaning more small and um, strategic being larger and more intercontinental ballistic missile, the mutually assured destruction sort of idea. So tactical ones are smaller and thought to be more usable, and we think that's very dangerous. Sure, and and Vladimir Putin hasn't, he's he's basically said as much. He said tactical nuclear weapons are on the table. And so has the United States. So neither of them have taken anything off the table. So it's a very dangerous situation. I mean, what what is your re- the reaction you're getting to that argument? Because 
On the other side, I'm sure there are some people who are arguing, well, Ukraine had nuclear weapons, gave them up with the tacit assurance that they were going to be protected by the United States, and perhaps Russia wouldn't have done what they did if that were the case. And actually, I would argue that the nuclear plant that the Russians are occupying may be as great a danger as tactical nuclear weapons right now. Would you agree with that, Helen? Is that nuclear plant a severe danger as well? I, I think what the Zephyrisa nuclear plant points out is that all nuclear power plants are things that could potentially be turned into a military weapon. And so the people that live there should be concerned about this not happening. Um, so I would argue that e even those plants that have been decommissioned and have, they all have, you know, fuel rods stored right there. Um, you know, if you had an explosion right there, you could potentially have a problem like a dirty bomb sort of situation. So, and, and, yeah, yeah, it's ironic. I think that yeah. is, is something we should at least take into consideration. Well, and, and we definitely should because I'm sure many Americans have forgotten that the original plan at 9-11 was actually to fly a plane into the control rod pool at Indian Point, north of New York City. But they didn't believe that there wouldn't have been some sort of anti-aircraft uh, missiles there, which, of course, there weren't. So you're absolutely right. Even yeah. those control rod pools are huh. uh, a bomb in, in, in waiting. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. I would point out something that, um, that gives me hope, though, and that was the Reagan and Gorbachev negotiations that led us from 80,000 nuclear weapons in this world down to the 13,500 that we have today. That gives me hope that through education and taking action, we can have an influence on what happens. So what do you say to someone who says we can't eliminate nuclear weapons altogether because even if all the nine nuclear powers agree to do that, if they agree to abolish every nuclear weapon, there's some crackpot out there with the tactical ability to put together a bomb of great destruction. And how do you, how do you deter that? How, how do you respond to that kind of concern? I hear that sometimes. Well, Captain Kiko Johnston Kitazawa, who's our, our current captain of the Golden Rule, says something that I think that makes sense. Murder is illegal. People still murder. Hmm. Should we make murder legal? <laughs> okay. So nuclear weapons are internationally illegal. Countries still own nuclear weapons. But should we make them legal and therefore sanction their existence? Hmm. So I think that um, making making them illegal, I think, is an important step towards getting rid of them all. Mm -hmm. There's also the argument, so sometimes I'm talking about this and people say, oh, good luck with that, as though it's not possible. And I remind them about this self-fulfilling prophecy. If everyone actually believes that it's possible to have peace, peace will be more likely to be possible. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it matters what you think. And so to take on a hopeless attitude and simply give up is a really depressing idea. And I think that it would be better to turn that around and say, I have hope. I'm taking action to make that hope become a reality. And that's how I get up every morning and am able to go forward, even though it seems like a daunting task. Mm -hmm. 
I have to be on this path so that I can look myself in the mirror and say, it may not happen in my lifetime, but I'm doing what I can. Very good. That, that's that's an encouraging perspective on it. Hey, let me ask you this. I mean, I, I know the Ukraine-Russia conflict has certainly put more emphasis in people's minds on the threat of nuclear war. Uh, climate change, uh, with the with the impacts of climate change escalating, and I mean, it's pretty obvious now that a world of hurt is already here and coming our way and going to get worse. Uh, how would you see climate change impacting the potential threat of nuclear war? What it does is put people in more desperate situations. It causes mass migrations. Therefore, it causes more conflict. So those countries that have nuclear weapons or are under um, some kind of nuclear umbrella are more likely to try to call that into play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also see it as a, as a problem with nuclear power, by the way. Um, all the power plants are cooled with water. And so what we've seen in France is that if the water is too hot from climate change warming the atmosphere and warming the water, They've had to shut down some of their nuclear reactors because they can't keep them cool. That's an interesting angle I'd not heard. How big is the crew on the Golden Rule, and whether they, you know, are are they a fairly uniform group of people, or you know, what's the nature of the people who are joining you on this endeavor? The Golden Rule has always sailed with a rotating crew of around four people. In uh, certain situations, you can sail her with just two people, and in other situations, we've had as many as 14 people aboard. And we have four bunks, so if we're going on an overnight voyage, it's best to have four people. Right. How do you fit four? How, how do you fit 14 people into four bunks? Well, we don't. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So they're I, out there for a day sail. I got you. Um, I got you. Yeah. You know, so we we like to take people sailing if the conditions warrant it. Uh, up here on where we are right now, that wouldn't particularly be a good idea. And on the river, sure. I'm not too sure that's a great idea either. We need maximum maneuverability sure. of the crew so that they can take sails down instantly if they need to or turn the boat as quickly as possible so we don't need extra people on board right. um, unless we're in a very safe situation. So okay. safety comes first. Yeah. And you say you have a rotating crew. How long are individual crew members on for then? Could be one transit, just a few hours. Could be days, weeks. Um, Captain Kiko will be with us for five months now and again wow. probably for another month or two later. Wow. Okay. And, and do you have uh, you have events planned along the route along down the Mississippi, for example, uh, events in Iowa, Missouri, Louisiana, states that uh, that the river travels uh, along? Yes, one of the ones I'm really excited about is in Dubuque, Iowa, where they have a community of 800 Marshallese people. So since the Golden Rule was trying to get to the Marshall Islands, it'll be very fun to interact with them. We're going to have music and dancing and wow. uh, talks. Um, families of two of the original crew members are going to be there from 1958. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to arrive on October 9th for a, a press conference and welcoming, but October 10th is going to be a, a really amazing day 
of activities with the Marshallese community, followed by a two-hour event in the evening at the Mississippi River Museum right there in Dubuque on Ice Harbor, where um, Captain Kiko is going to um, talk to the group. He's a native Hawaiian and um, also native, um, has ancestors from Guam, Mm. the Chamorro people. And so he's going to be talking about nuclear issues and treaties and the things that um, he sees from his perspective as a as a Hawaiian, as a Pacific Islander. Well, I think that's going to be really great. I think this is great work. It's very exciting. I think it's very engaging. And if people want to learn more, maybe uh, get a chance to meet the crew, meet the ship, uh, where do they go to learn to get more information? Well, please go to our Facebook page, Golden Rule Peace Boat, or go to VFP as in Veterans for Peace, vfpgoldenrule.org. All of our events are there, as well as we're posting, as you know, as things happen, we're posting what happened at the events. Um, and, and you can find out a lot more about right. why we're doing what we're doing, about Veterans for Peace and its relationship to getting rid of nuclear weapons. And you'll be in Des Moines, my hometown, on October 12th, I believe. So. Yes, that's right. And there's an event planned for there. Yes, that evening. At the Northwest Community Center right. from 7 to 9 p.m. Right. In Des Moines on October 12th. Well, thank you so much, Helen, for taking the time to visit with us. Uh, folks have been talking with Helen Jacquard of Veterans for Peace. Uh, we're going to take a short break here. When we come back, uh, Charles and I are going to discuss uh, President Biden's student loan debt cancellation initiative. You know, some are praising it without res- without any reservation. You know, my take, uh, it's a Band-Aid that uh, I think avoids a much deeper problem. And I have no idea where Charles stands, but I think we're about to find out. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Vibes Kitchen and Bar in downtown Des Moines at the corner of 13th and Walnut serves clever, creative, modern interpretations of American classic bites and drinks. The Vibes team offers great food and customer service in a relaxed and welcoming atmosphere. Vibes is the perfect place for your party or function, and it's got an outdoor patio ideal for hobnobbing with friends and co-workers or for watching your favorite sports team. Learn more at Vibes Kitchen and Bar's Facebook page. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. 
You know, at a time when these huge corporations control most of the media, and just a few of them, in fact, you know, the niche we provide here at this program is more important than ever. So please support what we do. You can go to the Fallon Forum website, uh, donate, sign up for my weekly blog. Uh, you can become a monthly sponsor. And uh, speaking of sponsors, uh, thanks to Western Optometry, located in, in Des Moines East Village, uh, Dr. Joel Western and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry. Thanks also to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. You know, wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact DavidDrakeFamilyPsychiatry.com. All right, so, um, yeah, Charles Goldman with me here, folks, and we are later in the program talking about crime, specifically white-collar crime. Um, but we're going to talk now about the student, the student uh, debt cancellation initiative that President Biden has signed into law that some are heralding as the greatest achievement of his administration so far, and some are saying uh, it's a waste of money, throwing money away. Um, Charles, what do you think? I don't see it as a waste of money, but I, I think that um, it's it's more a political, I don't want to say it's a political stunt, not like, you know, taking uh, migrants to Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> but, it, you know, it was a, a promise he, that Biden made. Is it good policy? In some ways, no. Uh, but not, not for the reasons that I think immediately became manifest. You know, what, what was the first thing we heard? I paid mine. I paid my loan. It's not fair. So, you know, we we, it was just another opportunity for Americans to do best what they do best now, which is wine. (laughs) You know. (laughs) Well, you know, know, whining whining is the one thing that brings us together. It definitely does. It definitely does. Or then left or right, we can whine them. Yeah. The other critique was, well, you know, why should, you know, some uh, laborer or somebody with a, a, a practical skill pay off the loans of people who are going to medical school and, you know, law school or other places. Because it is true that a lot of these were graduate degrees who would be helped by this. But I guess the problem there, of course, is I I, I never like the argument of, well, I'm paying taxes. I don't want my taxes paying for this. You know something? I pay taxes too. I don't want my taxes paying to support religious schools that are allowed to discriminate about the students they pick and about the people who can work there. You know, uh, I don't want my taxes paying for crisis pregnancy centers. So, you know, that's not a valid argument. Tough luck. That's the way it works in a democracy, you know. But you don't get everything you want. You don't get everything you want. And yes, your tax money goes places it shouldn't be going. And then we could make the argument just all of the last uh, yeah. you know, segment. I don't like my money going to pay for nuclear weapons either. You know, so. Um, what are you against freedom? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So the question is, is this really, first of all, as usual, the, the lamestream media, you know, sort of portrayed this as, um, well, you know, these are the people who are going to benefit because it was about the, the um, forgiveness of the 10000 for the higher or the really middle income um, people with debt and then the 20000 for those who are lower income who got Pell Grants. But what they had completely ignored, and of course the Biden administration, as usual, is not able to get across, is that they also changed the terms of repayment for pretty much everybody, uh, well beyond the group. Hold on, are you blaming President Biden for being unable to explain 
the policy, or are you just saying that well, you're only even though he does the best job of explaining it, the media doesn't grab the it media, and the media, it the media, they know that actually there were four of the five other elements to this about how they're going to change the calculation of interest, right. how they were going to actually shorten the time at which time, if you've been paying back, they would loan, you know, forgive your loan. They were going to sure. go down for 25 years. And a lot of that would years. really help black families. Well, yeah. that's, that's absolutely correct. But none of that was amplified. But right. let's get to the question of, and maybe pose the question this way. If college is so valuable in terms of enhancing people's earnings, why can't they pay back $10,000 themselves? I'm not, not an argument for not doing it, but it's, that to me is the question. What well, is depend, the value? It, de it depends on what degree you achieve and what profession you go into. A friend of mine summed it up pretty well. She had got her undergraduate degree. She was off working, making, you know, and she's very talented, very bright, very talented, uh, not making a heck of a lot of money, decided to go back to grad school, in her words, so that I, so that I could wait higher end tables. So, I mean... What's the purpose of that? Well... Other than to go back to just get the education, which is fine. And but hope that maybe you'll land a job that pays better than But the point is, is that the tables. vast majority of people who are not in the classic traditional professional fields are finding just that scenario, which is that about two-thirds of people are not using their college degrees in the work they're doing. Now, some of them are doing work, which is actually still producing a, a comfortable or more than comfortable income. But the point is is that if $10,000 makes that much difference in your life, then you cannot make an argument that the present cost of college is justified. Okay, and so the loan program, to some degree, is what's driving and allowing these kind of tuitions to be charged. Well, here's my problem. is, is you know This is um, a Band-Aid. Right, I'm, I agree and, with you. It's and, a total you know, Band-Aid. Sometimes we need Band-Aids, and that's okay. Right. But uh, what bothers me is that there doesn't seem to be a solid sustained discussion about how to avoid this problem in the future. You know, you, you could do you could do this plan now and in four, five, six years, you could do it all over again. There'd be a whole new generation of graduates with the same problem as right. long as college remains unaffordable. And I, I you know, I, I put the burden, I blame colleges and universities for this problem to some extent, not entirely, but to some extent. I mean, there's this expansion mentality. They've always got to get bigger. I mean, look at look at Drake University here in Des Moines. I cannot believe that was where I went to college in the '80s. I cannot believe how big Drake has gotten physically big. And there's a lot of cost that comes with that bigness. I mean, we have we have six new houses here in in our neighborhood because Drake was going to tear them down <laughs> to build new buildings, new parking lots, and they got moved at least. I'll, I'll give people credit for that. But all this continued expansion. We have this other college here. Well, it's, it's now a university, Grandview College. It was in my legislative district. Um, fairly small, compact college. Decided to become a university and just kept expanding. I mean, why is that necessary? Why is that helpful? Why is that, why, how can that not be seen as driving up the cost of everything relevant to college? No, I agree with you. And, and the obscenity of tuitions, even at, at state institutions at this point, has actually been a big driver for inequality. I mean, these institutions are seen by the right as the leftist, socialist, you know, liberal institutions. But their labor practices are horrendous, many of them. You know, you can go to Princeton and, you know, for instance, let's say, let's just pick any Ivy League school, you know. Let's and pick on Harvard. 
We've oh, any, done, any we've done Harvard recently. So you can pay 50, you know, or you don't pay, uh, your parents are in most cases going to be paying, um, you know, 50, 60, $70,000 to go to the school where maybe the first two years in lower level co- courses, you get taught by adjunct professors, mm-hmm. okay, i.e., Slave labor that these supposed you know liberal bastions that are charging this can pay pretty much nothing. Don't give them an office. Have them you know teaching out of the back of the you know, the trunk of their car. <laughs> and while of course the high paid professors teach one or two courses a year, their main reason for being there is to get funding from the government to do other things. Um, you know. How is this helping so, so, our country? So why 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 can't why why can't why wouldn't Biden and Congress consider passing this student loan de- uh, debt cancellation initiative and attach some requirements to colleges and universities to address some of the concerns that you and I and others are raising? Or yeah, why not? I mean, I think that's perfectly fine. I think actually, you know, coming out of World War II, we were able as a country to afford to, um, you know, pay the veterans to go back to school. It's the biggest driver that created the middle class in the United States. And there were, there were many, many places, states and cities, municipalities, that basically provided college education for free or for a very modest amount of money. And in your, your profession, doctor, uh, in Germany, if you, become, if you choose to become a doctor or if you, I think you have to qualify to get into med school, but that's paid. You don't pay if I'm. If I'm if That's I'm, correct. Right, in yeah. many, in many of the European and and sort of, you know, socialized systems, that um, the number of medical school slots is controlled. Oh, you just said the S word. Well, but they are. They are socialized <laughs> systems. They're not. So- well, well, and they're so not is- Venezuelan socialist no. systems. Right, right, right. They but are so, socialized but systems. So is K through twelve education here. So yeah. why some ask? Okay, so we sub we 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 pay. You don't pay a penny. Well, anymore you've got to pay. For supplies and sports and who knows other, other well, all sorts of other things, but K through twelve education is historically paid for. It's a mm-hmm. public public benefit. Why does it end at twelve? Why why are the first four years of college not also considered an essential part of the attack the, the our collective commitment to educating our children? It's I mean it's a great question. It it was at one time. Mm-hmm. It was at one time, and it isn't anymore. Why? So yeah, because there's all this there's all this money that they're now awash in, because of the you know ability to get these loans, um, and wait wait they, who, they well they, the the colleges who's going to pay fifty or sixty thousand dollars unless you unless the only people who can afford to pay for college at this point even in places like the University of Iowa, you know these kinds of places are pricing themselves out of right. the aspirational. Students, right, and they're pricing themselves out of relevance. I mean, I, I I know plenty of people who go to college and then end up in professions that don't have much to do with their degree. That's my point. Two thirds of the people don't use their degrees anymore. I'm a great example, by the way. I my my I was kind of all over the board. I, I focused on I started on philosophy, switched to music, became very practical, and switched to religion. Uh, <laughs> well, and ended up in politics, broadcast journalism. Uh, and nonprofit work. Okay, but see, that's that's another question, which is why do we have eighteen-year-olds going to college? I, w- I would make an argument that the value of college, which for the most part in the United States seems to be mostly the experience, the social experience, a very expensive one, a very expensive social experience, would be much more appreciated by somebody who is more mature, 
who would understand that one, there is value to an education that maybe isn't related to vocation. And, you know, if we had a true competition, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that all, you know, so many of the people who want their kids to go to these named schools, you know, a lot of the, the drivers in our, you know, a lot of the wealthy, the new, the nouveau wealthy in our country are not products of the Ivy League. They're not products of Stanford. They're products of public schools. Mm -hmm. But the public schools have become increasingly looking like the Ivies. The, you know, the, the public colleges, the public and, colleges universities, and universities. Yeah. And the point is, is that we could have, I, I don't see any reason why you couldn't subsidize tuitions at the state institutions at various levels. It's kind of what they tried to do, what they tried to do in California, which is, yes, there's a level of university in California which probably is not going to work for the majority of students in California. But then there are, at the next level down, you know, state universities that are more appropriate for people who are looking both for education as well as something that might be useful vocationally, it can be provided at a lower cost. If, if we had some real competition, mm. because it became clear that the students weren't going to walk in with federally guaranteed loans, then maybe you would have a system where you do say, most people who want to go to college can go to college at a much lower cost, and the people who want to go to the elite schools, or the people who want to go to school with 500 people, so they're going to get that kind of attention, then those people can find a way to pay. But all we're doing is making inequality worse. And what we've done is separate the professional class from the working class in this country. And that is why you're able to turn people against making the working class more powerful. The problem is, for instance, physicians think they're professionals. We are professionals. But we're really nothing but high-priced wage slaves. They don't see themselves as You that. are a high-priced wage slave. We're just a high-priced wage slave. And the problem is... How are you a high-priced wage slave uh, as a cancer surgeon? Because you are being paid. You're, the, what you can be paid is controlled by many other factors other than, than your, you know, your, what you do. And yes, some of the professions within medicine have been very able to limit the number of people in there to therefore be able to charge higher prices. But the point I'm making is that when, once they separated the professional class from the working class, that's how we ended up where we are right now. Because unfortunately, people who should be driving the kind of changes you want to see identify too much with the one percenters. Hmm. I'm not talking about like the three percenters. They do actually, unfortunately, they do probably with the three percenters. Uh, right. But they identify too much with the people who are above them in the economic scale when they should be identifying with the other workers because that's what you are, and that's what college has done. And uh, if I can throw a political angle on it, that's what the Republican Party has been very, very good at. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Hey, we got to take a short break, uh, Charles. Again, Charles Goldman here with me, Ed Fallon. Uh, when we come back, we're going to be talking about white-collar crime. And, uh, yeah, we got uh, a couple angles to go on that back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally-owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online, and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week, with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food. Great community. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, 
children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the program, folks. You can support this alternative to the Angry Shock Jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business sponsor. Uh, check out the Fallon Forum website for details. And thanks to our sponsors, including Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all manner of creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. You can learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis, adamantly and actively supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Owner Mark Clipsham knows we have to build better health for people and the planet. And the services he provides are committed to that goal. That's Architecture by Synthesis. All right, so we got Charles Goldman with me, and uh, later in the program, me and Kathy Burns are going to be discussing agriculture in the U.S. versus agriculture in France. We've learned some fascinating things about corn. We'll talk about that, but first, we're going to be talking about white-collar crime. And you know, um, Charles, my thought is that um, the uh, probably the, the you know Al Capone is kind of the poster child of crime in the good old days. Well, he wasn't white-collar crime. No, he wasn't, right, right. Uh, but the whole definition of white-collar has kind of changed, too. But uh, to me, Donaldo Giuseppe Trumpino is kind of the, the best example of a successful white-collar well, criminal. And I, I know people, I, I, there are people I, offended I, I, by yeah, that. Yeah, I, I know you're being provocative, but I, I think... <laughs> no, I think that there are multiple elements to um, how we view white-collar crime in this country. Um how much we give the pass. Um, you know you, you know, I am adamantly against the death penalty right? under any circumstance, but I would make an exception for white-collar crime. Because, <laughs> well, then you're not adamantly against the well, death penalty I'm, I, under well, any circumstance. Well, the reason is this. These are premeditated crimes, okay? And the number of people hurt by white-collar crime is oftentimes far more expansive than any of the serial killers that, you know. How do you measure that? Uh, Give me an example. People being bankrupt. Uh, but let's say Bernie Madoff, okay? Okay. Bankrupted thousands of people, retirement funds. People committed suicide. That is not a victimless crime. We, 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 or, or let's take another example. Uh, how about Dennis Muhlenberg, the president of Boeing, CEO of Boeing? Okay, what did he do? Okay, so Boeing designs a plane, the MAX, you know, the, the MAX 8 which they knew it had a design flaw based on the way they had to place the engines on this plane. How do we know that they knew that? <laughs> From their own internal documents, we okay. know that they knew it. And we were able to secure Why else would they reports? have created a computer, a computer solution to the design flaw? Okay. The problem was they didn't tell anybody about this computer solution. Right. Why not? Because then they would have had to recertify the plane and have to then it would cost the airlines additional money to have to revamp their simulators and their training programs to teach their pilots how to recover okay. should this computer program not work. Which, so 300 and something people died in two plane crashes. 
which ultimately grounded the Max 8. Why is that not murder? Of course it's murder. Yeah. Well, well, why is it not prosecuted as such? Because it's white-collar crime. They tried to prosecute the test pilot. Not as an executive yeah. of the company that made the decision to go ahead with it, the but test the test pilot. pilot, their chief test pilot, was acquitted. They threw him under the bus. No, but or of course the they did. Of course they yeah. did. But he was acquitted. But the point was, Muhlenberg, first, well, first what happens is that because they had uh, defrauded essentially the American people and, and you know, uh, diluted the FAA, um, they were fined, like, I think $3 billion of penalty. Which it sounds like a lot of money, but for Boeing, it's a slap on the wrist. Pretty much. Yeah. And, and so um, then Muhlenberg was given the golden parachute, right? <laughs> It should have been a ride on the Max 8, but obviously. Yeah, um, everyone should have they, gave him, on the Max They gave him a lot of money to yeah. go away. That's how white-collar murder yeah. is handled, or the, the Johnson Johnson cases. Well, and before, I want to talk about that, but yeah. first, let's, let's, let's look at Donald Trump, right? Or as I like to call him in this context, uh, Donaldo Giuseppe Trumpino. But, uh, I mean, I mean here's, here's a guy who arguably has done... Made a, made, made a lifetime occupation of, uh, of, of, of engaging in white-collar crime. Mm-hmm. And maybe he is finally getting caught. Maybe he's finally going to be held accountable. I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm not well, gonna, look, I wouldn't look, bet on it. But. Look, look at what this, because you're probably talking about the New York State case. Sure. Well, him. yeah, that's the yeah, main one. Which, yeah. by the way, is being tried as a civil case because it's unlikely that the district attorney of Manhattan is going to bring criminal charges. Maybe he will. But Why not? Because he's Why a coward. Not? He's a coward. But so, not, not Trump. Trump's a coward, too. But, I mean, <laughs> no. But the point is that Letitia James, who's the uh, attorney general for state, New York State, brings a case m- which is for the most part about that the Trump organization would overvalue their properties when they were seeking loans and undervalue those same properties by sometimes a magnitude of 10, <laughs> uh, tenfold, when they were... Um, valuing them for tax purposes. Okay, so what's the crime here and why do you care? Well, because that means that because they were cheating the state and the New York state taxpayers out of hundreds of millions of dollars in taxes they should have they paid they by false valuation. The Trumps weren't killing people like the That's correct. The head of That's correct. Ones. But this is a totally premeditated and and his defense first was Everybody in the business does this. Everybody in real estate does this. <laughs> right. And then his second defense, which actually has some validity, is, well, I put a piece of paper on front of the, you know, my proposal to them that you shouldn't trust any of our estimates. Now, wait, 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 wait. He, he said that? He said this the other day, that basically there was a disclaimer on the front of the you know, the, the, the financial proposal okay. and the filing for the loans that he was applying for that says you should not be able to, don't trust any of our, any of our valuations. You should be, you should have somebody come in and appraise it yourself. Now, I, I just would ask anybody out there, when was the last time, except maybe for the period right before the 2008 crash, when everybody was, you know, getting liar's loans, that you could buy a house and your bank didn't say to you, we would like an independent appraisal of this house. We're really not accepting that this house is worth, you know, right. $5 million that has 1,000 square feet. So, so you, in, this, in, in, in this case, you don't blame Trump. You blame, you blame the— Well, uh, yes, but the, it's still illegal to do it. But the question is, 
all right, all those people out there who are, you know, big Trump lovers, who think everything he did was fine, he's a great businessman. How is it that, why do you think banks in the United States would no longer do business with Trump, right? Because this is how he does business. Yet Deutsche Bank... He had to go to Germany. But Deutsche Bank, which is a money laundering bank, basically for drug dealers and the Russian oligarchs... Somebody has to do it. Right. Gave him these loans because, you know something? They didn't care. They were just laundering the money anyway because they didn't do the appraisals. So, you know, it's... This is that's one that's another form of white collar crime, but here's another form. And this is I think one which could, the, John, the Johnson the Johnson Johnson, case, Johnson yeah yeah because this could have not just ramifications on people who've already died from what Johnson and Johnson did, but for a whole bunch of class of cases as to how people will be hurt. Okay, back up. What do they do? Okay, so Johnson and Johnson put talc in in their baby powder, and it was at one time basically a product that was baby powder. But when pediatricians in the 70s began to be concerned about the fact that talc is almost invariably contaminated with asbestos or, or asbestos-like compounds. And, and talc is a natural It's a natural product, occurring mineral. But, but it naturally has asbestos in it, 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 it has, it, that's correct. It's, and certain deposits have more than others. Most of the talc was coming from mines in Vermont, which were known to be contaminated by asbestos. And so, so they, were warned by pediatricians that maybe this isn't such a good idea for babies to be sucking asbestos into their lungs. So they kind of changed their, their scheme. And their scheme was they started to sell it to adults, right? And all of a sudden, they started selling in particular to overweight women and women who are uh, uh, women of color. Um, marketing to, marketing to, to that. that. No, That's and, correct. And, and why? Because they felt that that was a place that they could get sell away, a lot of get it. Get away with it? Well, they, they sell a lot of it. And okay. they sell a lot of it overseas with talc in it. Now, the question, the, real, the real, really weird part of this is that talc wasn't necessary. Because other companies that were selling similar powders switched to corn storage, which is not a danger. And right. what was happening was that you saw, there was starting to be in the medical literature a question about whether talc was suddenly appearing on the specimens of ovarian cancer, on the tissue specimens. Now, initially they thought that they were perhaps breathing it in and it was being bloodborne to the oh, tumors. It was getting through any through the well, skin. Well, it may still be part of it, but well, it was actually going transvaginally, hmm. you know, up the fallopian tubes and, and was, Whoa. that's how it was. And what, it was, what year are we talking about, or years? Um, about 2000... The first articles were in the ni- late 1970s, but I think the, the articles that really began were about 2007. So, so in the late 1970s, we already knew that talc was contaminated with That's asbestos, correct. and it was not right. a good but idea. But the ovarian cancer link was not made until maybe 20 years later. But the point was, there wasn't any question. And, and, and people internal to the company were asking the question, why are we continuing to sell a talc-based powder when everybody else is selling corn storage-based powders? And to this day, to this day, Johnson & Johnson has said that they will, in fact, stop selling talc-based powder in the United States within a year or two, Um, and... But they continue to sell it outside the United States. So they're still selling it outside the U.S. That's correct. That's correct. But why? Why, why are they using talc when corn uh, you know, starch there, is I don't readily have, available I don't from have, Iowa farms? I can't. I can't answer that question. And all the reading I've done on this, I don't understand why they're so wedded to talc. Well, but, I, they, they, but, but, but let's get to the important part yeah, in terms well, of, of okay. what it means in terms of white collar crime. All right, all right. So 
So basically, they started losing cases in the United States. Now, they won a lot of cases where women were not able to prove that there was that much exposure or that their t- the, the tissue from their tumors... How many, how many times were they sued? I think there's about seven, 800 cases out oh there. Gosh. But they've won the, the majority of their cases. The problem is when they lose, they lose big. And so they decided that they wanted to limit their liability. Okay. Right. And so... They employed what's called the Texas two-step. And the Texas two-step is basically the ability to create a shell company in which you're able to move all the liabilities out of your primary entity, Johnson & Johnson Consumer Incorporated, Mm -hmm. into this shell corporation. This shell corporation... I mean, at least with shell corporations in other cases, they actually have like a post office box in the Caymans. I mean, these <laughs> shell corporations don't even exist. Oh my they have all the liabilities. And then within a couple of months of creating the shell corporation, they go to North Carolina and they declare bankruptcy in North Carolina. So they find these like, you know, state laws that are favorable to them. And so now when you're suing, they've moved all the cases to this, I think it's called LTL, if I remember correctly. To an entity that, to that, an that entity, can't be sued. That's right. right. And they've big, okay. basically given it $2 billion, and this is going to be it. And so there's a bankruptcy case, a bankruptcy judge, I'm sorry, in New Jersey, who's going to decide whether this is a legitimate use of this Texas two-step. Now, the Koch brothers were the first ones to use it. Big surprise. Yeah, Georgia shocked, Pacific, Georgia Pacific moved their liabilities for asbestos. Into a similar shell corporation, and also did so. So has there been, has there been any effort in Congress to uh, to address the problem to prevent these uh, this Texas two step as you call it from uh, being used to shield companies from from liability? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, and I guess I shouldn't be surprised, right? Right. We shouldn't be. Surprised. Well, I mean, there's got to be somebody in Congress. Who's I'm sure there's somebody, but the question is whether they can even do that because this is they're they're using state business code. This isn't really a federal issue. And but, you, but, you but argue the, they're the doing Fed, interstate commerce. But the feds can always uh, always preempt a, a state regulation if they decide that it's in the, they could in the best certainly, interest of, their, they could certainly of try. their donors. They could certainly try. But my point is, so if this is something that other co- companies use to escape liability, this is a disaster. Because we don't have much left in terms of being able to regulate corporations' bad behavior. And, right. you know, what we're left with, for the most part, is, is the plaintiff bar, you know, is being able to bring these companies into court. Um, and if they're able to basically decide how much they're going to pay by how much they're willing to fund these phony entities, then um, well, you can only imagine what will happen to I'm consumer guess, protection. I'm guessing the phony entities are a lot cheaper than losing a lawsuit. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the way they see it. Yeah. Well, at least they know they've yeah. already put $2 billion into this entity. That's yeah. the And now Johnson & Johnson has no relationship to this entity. Every suit has to be brought against this this phony, you know, shell corporation. And, that, and, and it's, it's, it's destined to lose. Well, right. eventually they'll have to they'll pay out that money. But the point is, that's it. Yeah, it's 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 there's no, yeah. gonna not, not gonna be any more. So why do they continue to use asbestos tainted talc when they've got corn Again, I, I couldn't figure out any of my reading on this. I could not get a good answer to why they continue to do it, other than they already had this asset. So Johnson they had all Johnson, these mines. Uh, unreputable country, a company engaged in white collar crime. One of the three uh, big uh, drug companies here that sponsored a COVID vaccination. 
Uh, one of the only things that I have in common with Governor Kim Reynolds is we both got the Johnson & Johnson shot. Um, was there talc and uh, asbestos in that shot? I don't uh, think there'd be any reason for that. No? Okay. No, but I, I, I think that this is, this is, you know, we concentrate a lot on violent crime in this country, but there's a lot of, in some sense, nonviolent crime, although yeah, you'll this never... kind of crime has lethal consequences. Sure, and you'll never hear the right-wing talk show host talk about white-collar crime. I mean, no, one they're of, too one... busy talking about the fantastic nature of the American free market, well, which or, doesn't or, exist. Or they will talk about crime, but it's always about uh, the, the street crime, and they somehow bring it back to it's Joe Biden's fault. Right. Well, <laughs> anyway. and, and one thing I'd say to our, our right-wing brethren, you know— And sister. And sis, yes, and, and sisters, that, you know, carrying a gun is not going to fix this. So expanding the Second Amendment rights is not going to fix the question of white-collar crime in this country. Right. You would think that people on, on both sides of the political aisle could get behind reforms that would hold these companies accountable. But then you would remember, oh, no, wait a minute. Democrats and Republicans alike, especially Republicans, are funded— by these same interests that don't want to see laws change to hold them accountable. So that's why nothing's happening. Of course. Yeah. Hey, Charles, thanks for joining me today. Folks, we've been talking with Charles Goldman. And uh, when we come back from a short break, Kathy Burns is going to join me. We're going to be comparing U.S. and French farming practices, especially when it comes to corn. You will be shocked to know how much of the French corn crop actually goes to corn you can eat versus how much of the U.S. corn crop goes to the same. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham is adamantly and actively committed to supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark knows we must all live and work with the goal of building better health for both people and planet. And he works to implement that vision through his stewardship of Architecture by Synthesis. You can learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures, great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here, folks. Remember, you can support this alternative to the shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor, or if you own a small business or run a nonprofit, you can also become a sponsor of this program. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Gateway has an excellent local produce selection as well. So check out their catering and floral services, and that's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Kathy Burns with me now. Kathy, of course, uh, directs Birds and Bees Urban Farm, which, of course, I'm also very much involved with. Uh, we recently got married after five years together. We said, hey, this is working out, and let's go on a honeymoon. Not only do we cultivate good food, but a very lovely relationship. <laughs> yes. And, you know, we, we went on a honeymoon, and we went to France, and we got to see a lot of French agriculture, mm -hmm. and that caused us to do a little bit of research, uh, especially about corn. 
And, um, well, we, we discovered some things that are of interest to us and I believe to you, our audience. It was it was interesting. We did a lot of travel. We went from Paris uh, over about a, an hour west of Paris by train, so going through a lot of what what would be farmland yeah. in France. And then uh, a few days after that, we took another train down to the southwest corner of France. And we found ourselves just commenting all the time on the agriculture, like, wow, they grow a lot of corn here. We really <laughs> didn't know that. But a lot of other things. So we noticed uh, the sizes of the fields were very different, of course, well, from what we see in the U.S. Bigger in the, in the uh, just south of Paris, in the flatter country, mm-hmm. the fields were, they weren't as large as farm fields in the upper Midwest. A little bigger, though, than, yeah, than but, elsewhere. But bigger than down in the south. Yeah. Yes, Yes, because the terrain changes when you go further south, and you yeah. get more rolling hills, and you get more rocks, rocks, yeah. and uh, rivers, and streams, and things. Um, <laughs> the variety of crops was very interesting, and then I was delighted to, to see artichoke fields. I, artichokes. We yeah. had to do a yui uh, on a uh, after a long day of driving. We had to do a yui. Go back, stop on a busy highway, and it was a little precarious, and take a photo of I the artichoke. I post a photograph of that artichoke field. I was so impressed. Um, between that and looking <clears> for turnips <throat> all the time. But also, uh, then the the farm-to-table kind of atmosphere in the, the country as a whole, uh, people talk about food a lot. People focus <laughs> on local and organic food. And uh, it's it's pretty refreshing. We but, really enjoyed it. But you know, we were trying to figure out the corn situation. We were, we were uh, smaller corn, and um, it really, some of it harvested, some of it very dry, some of it not at all dry, very green still. Yeah, and we're at the end of September right now. This was in the middle of September right. that we were traveling, and thinking. Why are some fields completely harvested and some look green? Mm-hmm. And we we believe it's because it's a different growing season, and they just have a little more leeway to plant when it works for them and harvest when it works for them. Well, the fascinating—I mean, here in Iowa, over half of our corn crop goes to ethanol. Most of the rest goes to feeding cattle and hogs, mm-hmm. and then some of it goes to various other products, most notably high fructose corn syrup. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, what one uh, percent of the U.S. corn crop is used for edible corn, sweet corn, you know, green giant canned corn, frozen corn, that sort of corn thing. that we corn humans meal. eat. Yeah, one percent is used is, is actually what we eat. In the the US. rest is eaten by our cars, our cows, our pigs, mm-hmm. our laboratories. But in France, interestingly, how, what is the percentage, Kathy? Nearly 50% of the corn grown. And that's why we were seeing fields of corn. We didn't stay, stop the train, get out, we want to see the corn. They wouldn't do that <laughs> well, for we, us. But we did that with the artichokes. We tried. <laughs> but, but we kept commenting that these fields are their shorter variety of corn. And we didn't realize that we were not looking at field corn or seed corn, as it's called in Iowa. We were looking at lots and lots of fields of sweet corn, and that's probably why they had more versatility in when they were harvesting, because the, the sweet corn would be a quicker crop, because you don't let it dry before you harvest it. Yeah. And that, that was all the difference. So that was interesting to learn. Yeah. I'm having an increasingly hard time justifying half of our corn crop going to feed cars. Well, compared to in France, when we looked it up, the percent of the corn crop used to create uh, bioethanol uh, is just under 4%, as opposed to in the U.S., which is 50%. 
Yeah, and uh, I, of course, was also very intrigued by the the large number of uh, wine uh, vineyards. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also in the south, um, loads of apple orchards. That was really interesting. We, yeah. we were in a rental car, and we were... We had come out of the Pyrenees. No, we were just yeah. at the other, the east end of the Pyrenees, and then driving up north a little bit. And it just was orchard, orchard, orchard. And a lot of them were netted, and some were right. not. I guess um, uh, we presume birds are a problem. I would yeah. presume. Yeah. And then we saw more trees that were espaliered. Uh, in other words, not letting the trees grow to a full natural size, but to trim them and tether them to maybe a, a whole row of a te- uh, some some twine and some uh, support systems, and they still produce a lot, even though they don't have all their yeah. branches. Yeah, and they're a lot, lot easier to harvest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, because you can go down the yeah. row, and yeah. you don't have to climb up a lot of ladders. And- yeah, and, and you know, we've got, I mean, gosh, the, the upper Midwest is one of the wealthiest uh, wealthiest places in the world in terms of farmland. And there are things we, I mean, we probably can't grow grapes here as well as they can in some parts of the, the world. The soil is not the same. No, but, but we can grow so many things. I mean, I would love to see us continue to diversify agriculture here. Well, I, I kept thinking French people are famously fit, <laughs> except, of course, as we were reminded of all the smoking that yeah, they do. Yeah. But uh, walking to local markets, doing daily or every other day marketing, eating a really good variety of fresh food, it, it adds up to good health. And I think uh, we, we have a lot that we can you know, get, get from the French and the even more European system. Um, but unfortunately, some Americanisms are creeping into their, their, their uh, territory. So we saw fast food places. We saw some big supermarkets. Some McDonald's. <laughs> and uh, I don't think the American thing is doing them any favors. Kathy, thanks again. A good conversation. Uh, Thanks to our guest today, Helen Jacquard with Veterans for Peace, and to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Vibes Kitchen and Bar, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Remember, your support for this program matters a whole lot. So go to the Fallon Forum website to learn more about how you can make a difference. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week with another hour of cutting-edge talk radio.